From behind, fleshy veneer, a gasping soul appears, born innocent, bloody and mild, fate's toy, destiny's child, beams of light find, an empty, bewildered mind, where am I, who am I? Thus the struggle begins, good and evil within, and sin honors evil twin, first to crawl, then stumble and fall, down life's long hall, for some a noble course. Others fare worse, forces of the universe, both positive and perverse, traverse the bridge eternal, where spirits holy and carnal cast lots for mortals. In the end, into angels' arms ascend, or to the jaws of hell command, and the struggle begins again. Welcome to SKB, Dissecting the Serial Killer's Brain. I'm your host, Caroline, a university biology professor and true crime junkie. Thanks for joining me on my quest to understand evil. This is episode five of a five-part series, Danny Rowling, the Killer Cowboy Crooner. We left Danny on September 7th, 1990, as he sat in an Ocala jail right after he robbed a Winn-Dixie. So Danny Rawlings is sitting in jail in Ocala awaiting trial for the robbery at the Winn-Dixie. That robbery was just seven days following uh, the last murder in Gainesville. Over the course of this seven days, a task force had been um, put together in Gainesville to try to solve these, you know, these Gainesville murders because it was a terrifying time. You know, it was just as the semester was supposed to start, so many, huge percentage of students did not return to campus um, right after that, right after the last murder occurred. A lot of them never returned to campus. So Gainesville was very interested in solving these murders very, very quickly. On October 16, 1990, Special Agent Wayne Porter of the FBI, he provided the Gainesville Task Force a VICAP report with eight unsolved murders of females, and it indicated that two murders had similarities, but there was one murder that was incredibly similar to the Gainesville murders. But before we talk about that, what is VICAP? Well, VICAP is a program that was developed by, like a database program, that was developed by the FBI at Quantico, and it stands for Violent Criminal Apprehension Program. This way, law enforcement agencies throughout the country can help each other in solving, uh, solving violent crimes that have gone unsolved. There was a murder that had happened in Shreveport, a triple murder in Shreveport, Louisiana. Uh, what was it? November 4th, 1989. The murder of Tom 
Grissom, Julia Grissom, and her nephew, Sean Grissom. And the way that Julia had been murdered and posed, in addition to the fact that Julia had been her, the murderer, Danny, had cleaned her genital area, that was very similar to some of the Gainesville murders. The task force got another tip. On November 5th, 1990, a woman named Cindy Dobbins called in an anonymous tip about Danny Rawling. In this clip, Cindy Dobbins, the one that called in the tip, she talks a little bit about why she called. Danny had kept showing up over the last few months dressed like Rambo. I mean, the boots, the, the whole nine yards. One evening, he called Steve in the backyard, and he told Steve, and he says, Steve, I really need to talk to somebody. I'm a bad guy. And Stephen goes, what do you mean you're a bad guy? We're all bad people. He goes, no, Stephen, for real, I'm a bad guy. I like to stick knives in people. Stephen says, what? He goes, no, I really do. I like to stick knives in people. That's when Stephen told me no more. Danny had to go. January of 1991. And by this point, police had begun to think that the Grissom murders in Shreveport and the Gainesville murders might be connected. And even though the FBI had sent over the VICAP report in October, the investigators on the task force hadn't really looked very closely at that VICAP report until that January. In Mary Rysak's book, she indicates that Shreveport police called Gainesville to talk about Danny Rowling and the Grissom murders that had occurred in November um, uh, of 1989. Shreveport had been looking at the VICAP um, report, and of the eight murders that were listed in this VICAP report that had been unsolved, the Grissom murders bore striking similarities to the Gainesville murders. One of those murders that bore some similarity that came out in the VICAM report to the Gainesville murders was that of Sherry Parisho. She was murdered in 1989 near Big Pine Key in Florida. In 2004, a man named Charlie Brandt was tied to her murder, so that was not Danny Rawling. On January 11th, Ocala police called Gainesville to let them know that Danny Rawling had passed through Gainesville in August and he'd stolen a car. It was then that the task force learned that Danny had grown up in Shreveport. When the Shreveport detective called the Ocala jail where Danny was being held for Grand Theft Auto, the Shreveport detective mentioned that Rawling was wanted for the attempted murder of his father, James Rawling. And they also mentioned the Grissom case, indicating that there were some similarities. Both Julie and the girls, the women that had been murdered in Gainesville were pretty dark haired girls. There was the same kind of technical know-how where the offender cleaned the victim's genitals with detergent to mask any genetic material that he might leave. I want to take a break here from the story just for a moment to talk a little bit about DNA and its use in the courtroom or use in, um, in legal cases. The structure of DNA was discovered in 1953 by scientists Watson, Crick, and Rosalind Franklin. So 1953, we're talking that's within my mother's lifetime, right? So not, I mean, you know, to you, those of you that are under the age of 20, 
that seems like a very long time, but in the grand scheme of things, it really isn't. So the structure of DNA was discovered in 1953. Well, by the 1960s, they were using DNA material, like a type of DNA, in order to determine paternity. And this, this particular DNA testing they were doing, it was called, it's called HLA typing. And you may see that or hear that in older cases. But HLA is human leukocyte ant antigen. So human leukocyte, human, human, right? Leukocyte is a type of white blood cell that's part of the immune system. And an antigen, so I'm going to break that word down, antigen is antibody generating. So it's part of the immune system. Well, apparently the human leukocyte antigen is highly polymorphic, which means that there's lots and lots of different alleles for it. And an allele is, so each gene you have that codes for a specific trait, you get one allele from your mother and one allele from your father. So alleles are just um, one form or variation of a particular gene. So let's use the example of earlobes. There are two alleles for for earlobes. One allele codes for them to be attached, which means you don't have that flappy earlobe thing. And the other form is unattached. Well, unattached is the dominant allele, right? So when my son was born, my ex-husband has these really sweet, cute little ears with no like floppy earlobes or anything. So I was hoping my son would have my ex-husband's cute little ears, but instead he got mine, the big floppy earlobes hanging down. So that tells us that earlobes that are unattached are the dominant blood types, right? There are, you know, depending on, you know, I don't want to go into too much detail, but there's eight major blood types. A positive, A negative, B positive, B negative, AB positive, AB negative, O positive, O negative, right? So what that means is that there are a number of different alleles that code for this particular gene of blood type right? There's, you only get two alleles. Okay, so back to the different types of DNA testing they had. Human leukocyte antigen testing was um, about 80% accuracy, but the issue was, say, say a child was born and it's a possibility that one of two brothers is the father or one of two cousins is the father the HLA wouldn't be able to tell the difference between, or had a hard time telling the difference between close family members. Well, by the 80s, something new had happened in the world of DNA um, testing. And it was called, it's called, it's not, was called, it's still called, restriction fragment length polymorphism. So basically what they would do is cut the DNA into pieces using this thing called a restriction enzyme. And the restriction enzyme is an Enzyme. So you have these big, long strings of DNA. A lot of it is just takes up space and really has no function, but there's a lot of it that actually codes for, um, you know, specific characteristics, proteins, all these different things. So in these regions where there is something that's being coded for, these different regions can be cut at a specific point, right? So the restriction enzyme will go in and cleave DNA at a specific a specific site on one side, a specific site on another side, and then forensic scientists could compare these restriction fragment length polymorphisms between, you know, different suspects. 
1986, a British scientist named Alec Jeffries, he had just a couple years before discovered that there were patterns in some regions of the DNA, and these are what we're going to talk about in a little bit, which are short tandem repeats, that they're highly individual. And in 1987, this type of DNA testing um, profiling was used for the first time in England, and it was used to solve the rape and murder of a 15-year-old girl. The problem with this stuff back in the late 80s and even into the early 90s is that it would take a very long time to get DNA, you know, to run a DNA, and it was also pretty expensive. So that was the 80s. By the 90s, things had gotten a little bit more exciting. Uh, there, something called polymerase chain reaction had been developed. Polymerase chain reaction basically is, okay, I've got some DNA here. I'm going to make as many copies of it as I can. I'm going to make millions and millions and millions and millions of copies of it so that way I can actually test it, right? And they would make copies of these areas called short tandem repeats. Short tandem repeats are sort of like these restriction fragment length polymorphisms or RF, RFLPs. However, the short tandem repeats are even shorter. So there's more, there's more uniqueness especially if you're testing short tandem repeats far away from each other on the DNA, then there's less chance of um, coincidence, right? It wasn't really until the early 2000s that DNA became much more commonplace in a courtroom scenario because they developed new techniques in which to amplify the DNA sample um, you know, a lot easier, a lot quicker, and a lot cheaper. Now we live in this CSI effect sort of world where if you got called to jury duty, if there was a murder, the, one of the things that you are going to expect is DNA. But back in the 90s, even, even up until the mid-90s, the average non-scientist person didn't really know much about DNA other than what they learned in high school biology. And you can look at, you can go back and watch footage of the O.J. Simpson um, trial when the DNA expert was speaking. It was obvious by the faces on the jurors that all of this talk about nucleotides and how they pair up and, you know, what the randomness factor is, it, it, they just didn't, they didn't understand it. And it wasn't because they were dumb. It was because people didn't know then what they do now about DNA testing. But let's get back to this story of Danny Rawling. If you're listening to this true crime podcast, then you already know that most women who are murdered are murdered by somebody they know. A 2016 study by Violence Policy Center um, indicated that only about 7% of female murder victims are killed by strangers. And if you further suss that down, um, and you find it's a much smaller percentage that would fit a particular physical type who are killed by the same type of, or killed by somebody using the same type of weapon. So we look, we've got Gainesville, dark haired, petite girls, use of a K-bar knife, use of some of the similar uh, types of posing of the bodies. And there's not a lot of people out there in the country that were doing the same thing, right? So it, that helps to narrow things down a little bit. At this time, Rawling had not yet been named a suspect in either the Grissom triple murders 
or in the Gainesville serial murders. However, around 5 p.m. on January 11th, the FBI called Ocala to have them um, put a notice on Danny's file that if he were released from the Ocala jail, the Gainesville task force should be notified. The task force then started to look at all of the crimes committed in Gainesville around the time of the murders. And one of these crimes was a bank robbery. And that was the bank robbery that Danny did and left the money behind at the campsite. So the task force was looking at some of these crimes, especially at this bank robbery. A few things jumped out at them. One, that the bank robbery was still unsolved. Two, that the first Union Bank robbery happened on Archer and 34th Avenue, which was really close to Krista Hoyt's apartment. The task force went back to the evidence that they found at that bank robber's campsite. They found a screwdriver, a gun, a ski mask, and a cassette tape deck with a tape inside of it. They were able to match the screwdriver to pry marks that were left at the scenes of the murders. And the screwdriver had 17 separate matches that could be placed at these three different Gainesville murder sites. At that campsite, a pubic hair was also found, and it turned out to be Krista Hoyt's, um, and they found this out through DNA analysis. So it took a long time to get those results. It's not like, well, it's not like on Brooklyn Nine-Nine where they walk into the DNA lab at night and the guy gives them results within an hour. It's not that fast, but now, but back then it was very, very slow. The investigators on the task force decided that they should listen to the tape that was in the cassette player. And oh, what did they All I know is I'm just one man alone in this world, away from the whole world by himself. God sent this to the three people I love the most. I always love you. I love my mother. I love my father. And I love my brother. And no matter what anybody thinks of that man, I want these three people that I'm talking to right now to know that this is not the road that I really want. This is not what I want. But it is the road that is before me now. So as the investigators were starting to piece together that Danny Rawling might be a, um, might be a good suspect, they found some other things that they could test at the campsite because before this they didn't know that the bank robber at that campsite they didn't know who that bank robber was well danny left behind his cassette tape deck and he talked on that right i've played a bunch of it so he's talking and the investigators listened to the cassette tape that they found at that campsite and it's there that they got his name danny rawlings and they thought 
Okay, bank robbery near Krista's. One of Krista's pubic hairs was found at the campsite. You know, this is this, you know, this has to be their guy. So Danny was now the prime suspect, but they needed to get biological samples from him in order to compare it to the evidence left at the crime scene. By January 22nd, 1991, police decided they needed to start to interview some of Danny Rawlings' friends and family. So on that day, an old detective buddy of James's asked James and Claudia to come in and talk to them about it. Once they were in the interrogation room, the Rawlings were told that Danny was the chief suspect in one of the film murders, but they didn't believe it. On January 23rd, 1991, James and Claudia were interviewed separately. Claudia actually had to sneak out of out of the house in order to go be interviewed because, you know, James James wouldn't allow her to do anything. Anyway, according to Claudia, um, there was a long history of mental illness in James's family. This included schizophrenia. On January 24th, 1991, Florida investigators went to speak with Danny's brother, Kevin. And Kevin tells them that Danny was suicidal and wanted to die. Investigators also spoke to Bunny Mills, Danny's ex-on-again, off-again girlfriend, a woman named Georgette Eaton. Georgette Eaton had met Danny in mid-April of 1990. She told them whenever she and Danny had sex, she felt like Danny seemed disgusted. He wanted to clean himself up immediately. Georgette was a nurse, and she actually thought that he might be borderline schizophrenic, and that he, she, also, she also relayed to investigators that he had anger issues. They talked to Danny's uncle, Charles Mitchell, and Charles Mitchell talked about Danny stabbing a pine board in the backyard and commented that it must have taken a lot of strength. So basically, I guess Danny, when he got out of the military, he had a big pine board in the backyard, and he would take his K-bar knife, and he would, like, practice stabbing it, which it reminds me of the, um, which season is that? I think it's, like, in season two of True Detective, the character that um, Rachel McAdams plays she's in her apartment like stabbing at that piece of wood that's what I imagine it looks like um, although I'm sure she didn't do that his uncle even said that at one point Danny had threatened him with that same knife all right so that takes us to Cindy and Steve Dobbins and so Cindy was the one that had called in um, an anonymous tip back in back right after the Grissom murders had happened so Cindy had known Danny for about 15 years since they were teenagers she had called that anonymous tip in on November November fifth, nineteen ninety. She had seen Danny hanging around the, the hanging around the Dillards where Julie Grissom worked, and thought that his behavior was strange. Her husband Steve thought Danny was weird, and he didn't like him hanging around, especially alone with Cindy. Steve thought that Danny was actually afraid of women. On January twenty sixth. 1991, the Gainesville Task Force requested everything from Danny's cell. And when one of the guards heard that this was what was happening, she called the she called the Gainesville Task Force to let them know that Danny had had a tooth extracted earlier that day or the day before, and that she had it for them. So there's some uh, DNA evidence there that they could use to to at least verify if their hunch was correct. They would, of course, have to get a warrant in order to obtain a blood sample and head hair um, standard. On February 10, 1991, DNA linked the Shreveport and Gainesville murders. Then on February 27, 1991, a special agent went to interview Homer and Cavus Rawling about their grandson, 
So Homer and Cadis were um, are were were James's parents. When they were interviewing his grandparents, one of his aunts was there, and they wondered if they the investigators asked whether or not the family thought that Danny could have been capable of committing such crimes. And Cavus, you know, his grandmother, of course, said that Danny was a good boy. But his Aunt Jeanette really made no comment about whether she thought he could have or could not have committed this crime. On April 17, 1991, so they're really investigating this crime, the Tampa agents, so this is Cindy Bernard and Steve Davenport, they went to Ocala and they served Danny with two arrest warrants for, the bur for burglaries that happened in Tampa. Angel Bernard told Danny that she knew he killed the Gainesville students. There was another early suspect named Stephen Michael Bates, and he told investigators that he had met Ed Humphreys and Danny Rawling in Ocala, and that the three of them traveled to Gainesville, Gainesville together. But Danny very clearly told them that he had never met Ed Humphreys and that Ed's name should be cleared. I don't think he'd ever met Stephen Michael Bates outside of the Ocala jail. On September 18, 1991, Danny was sentenced to life in prison for the Winn-Dixie robberies because he was a habitual offender. On September 25, 1991, Danny was convicted of a robbery in Tampa, and this was at the house of a people named the Rios. He stole a watch and their Mustang. On October 4, 1991, Danny was convicted of the Boss burglary, and this is where he stole a bicycle. On October 10, 1991, Danny was convicted of stealing a camera and some other items from the Lawrence household on September 1, 1991. October 18, 1991, Danny was sentenced to three life sentences plus 170 years for the Tampa crime. Okay, so he's already, at, by October 18, 1991, he is going to spend the rest of his life in prison. And then on November 1, 1991, Danny was arraigned on charges for the bank robbery, which I think the bank robbery is a federal crime. On November 5th, 1991, a grand jury was called to begin to hear evidence in the Gainesville murders to see if they had enough evidence to bring charges against Danny Rawlings and his family. On November 15th, 1991, Danny Rawlings was indicted on five counts of murder, three counts of sexual battery, and three counts of armed burglary. Danny was sent to the Florida State Prison in May of 1992 where he awaited trial. While he was at the Florida State Prison, he attempted to commit suicide a couple of times. One time he tried it with a razor. Once he took 19 Thorazine pills. Thorazine is, is a medication that's used to treat psychotic disorders and it can reduce aggression. Think about the scenes in um, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest when they're all lining up their medication. They just kind of chuckle and stand shuffle and then stand like they're total zombies, right? That's what Thorazine is. I mean, that's what Thorazine is. Um, Over-exaggeration of what's happening. Uh, and once, Danny even tried to hang himself. He got sent to Chattahoochee Mental Hospital, which is just northwest of Tallahassee. One of the roles of the doctors at Chattahoochee was to determine whether or not Danny or any other offender is competent for execution. So they had to determine whether or not they could try Danny for capital murder, which would make him eligible for the, the death sentence. But before they will bring capital charges against somebody in Florida, they want to make sure that they are, that the individual would be competent for execution. Well, while Danny was in prison, he bragged about the murders to anyone who would listen. 
he had photos cut out of the newspaper that he fell victim. And Danny confessed to a number of different inmates. Let's start with Paul, and I'm sure I'm saying his last name wrong. It's F-U-Q-U-A, so Fakwa. Danny told Paul that he cut up the girls because they were too pretty. When he spoke to Paul Lamarck, Danny told him that he had robbed the Ocala Win Dixie so that he would not be a suspect in the Gainesville murders. To Anthony Adams, Danny confessed to him during a one-on-one -on -one Bible study stating that a demon from hell forced him to kill to purge himself of all prior sins. Uh, when he talked to a man named Raymond Taylor, Taylor had been a criminal attorney before ending up in prison. So Danny spent a lot of time talking with Taylor about insanity and competence and incompetence in terms of how that how that would factor into a trial. There was another guy named Russell Binstead. Danny told him that he'd failed to he'd killed these women through soap and heroin. Well, it appeared that Danny told the truth a little bit at a time to a lot of different people while he was in prison, while he was in medical. One really key character that comes into play while Danny Danny met while he was in medical was a man named Bobby Lewis. Bobby Lewis was a violent offender as well. Bobby was sort of a local celebrity amongst the other prisoners because he had managed to escape death row. Danny started to really trust Bobby and want to confide in him. Danny told him things like he was disappointed that he prayed for Christina instead of Sonia because Christina had a better body. I mean, who the hell says that, right? He also told Lewis that he had decided to kill while he was in prison in Gainesville. Now, Bobby Lewis becomes really important because he is the only vehicle through which Danny will talk to police. So on January 31st, 1993, Danny asked to see members of the Gainesville Task Force, but he would only speak to them through Bobby Lewis. Danny wanted to confess through Lewis because, according to Danny, Bobby was a worthy soul who deserved a chance to make his life good, and that by helping Rawlings, Lewis might win favor with the parole board. That Danny Rawlings, he really is a thoughtful fellow, isn't he? More likely is that Danny was too, he was unable to verbalize or didn't want to verbalize what he had done to law enforcement officials. Danny, through Lewis, admitted to committing the murders, and he went on to confess that he had planned to kill eight people, one for each year he'd been in prison in Mississippi. He told Lewis how he had worn black ninja clothing and camped, right? And Danny claimed to have been forgiven by God, but he went on to attempt to absolve himself of the murders by blaming them on Gemini, his alter ego. So Gemini was the serial killer in The Exorcist 1 and 3. Gemini was a demonic killer who dis decapitated and disemboweled um, women or a woman. Now, there was a lot that came out during trial or a lot of um, speculation during trial that Danny made up this Gemini thing in an effort to be able to plead not guilty by reason of insanity. Yeah, I think there is some truth to that. However, when Danny talks about his who Gemini and Enad were, he doesn't try to explain, at least later on, he doesn't try to portray like he had multiple personalities. Instead, he described these as parts of himself that he had tried to keep under control, but then just couldn't for whatever reason that happened. So the Gemini name, I think, came from, I'm sure it did come from the exorcist, 
but it was his way of explaining to himself what was going on inside. Danny told officers, again, through Bobby Lewis, that, you know, the, during the interrogation, that he had buried the gloves and knife that he wore during the murders near somewhere on the University of Florida campus. They never found the knife, at least not at the time of the trial. Who knows if some of the archaeology students have gone out looking for it. Maybe they found it, but that would be really interesting. Now, during this interrogation, Danny also brought up Shreveport murders of the Grissoms, but he said he didn't want to deal with those murders until after the Gainesville murders. So when investigators asked Danny about the mutilation, Lewis, right, uh, replied that Danny did not even understand why he did it himself, but he professed that he wanted to understand it. So Danny said, you know, I don't know why I'm mutilating these bodies. I don't know what is possessing me to do this, but I want to understand why. And I want to just, just quick aside here. I know it sounds like I'm making excuses or looking for good things about Danny Rowland. I certainly am not. I just am interested in how the brains of people like this work of serial murderers. So February 15, 1994, jury selection was to begin. However, on January 26th of that same year, Danny met with his public defender, and he decided he wanted to change his plea of guilty. Um, his lawyer, C. Richard Parker, tried to convince Danny to go to trial because he thought they could present mitigating factors to a jury that might allow him to avoid the death penalty. But Danny said nope, and on February 10, 1994, he signed a three-page plea of guilty. Then on February 15, 1994, Danny officially changed his plea to guilty on all counts. Danny said, quote, guilty, your honor, end quote. And then he followed with, quote, your honor, I've been running from one thing and then another all my life, whether from problems at home or with the law, from myself. But there are certain things you just can't run from, this being one of those, end quote. So because Danny had pled guilty, that means that the jury selection would be to determine what his penalty would be. So by the ninth day of jury selection, a 12-panel jury um, was picked out consisting of nine women, three men, and then the 10th day, they picked four alternatives, um, two men, two women. The jury was tasked with weighing the aggravating factors and the mitigating factors, right? So aggravating factors are the things that make the crime so much worse. Mitigating factors are the things that might have uh, get a jury or a judge to take um, sympathy or have some empathy for the criminal because it explains reasons why their behavior may have occurred. So the aggravating factors um, were crimes were cold-blooded and premeditated. The crimes were committed during sexual battery. They were particularly heinous, atrocious, and cruel. The offender had a previous or prior history of felonies. The crimes were committed for the purpose of escaping detection or avoiding arrest. And then mitigating factors they had to consider were whether or not the perpetrator suffered from mental illness at the time of the crime, whether the crimes committed, um, if they were committed under extreme stress, if the perpetrator, if the, if the perpetrator of the crime grew up in an abusive household, if the perpetrator had a history of drugs or alcohol abuse, or if the perpetrator showed remorse. Opening statements began on March 7th, 1994. The prosecution was arguing for the death penalty. 
And the defense was arguing against the death penalty because of mitigating factors, you know, mitigating factors in Rawlings' childhood, like abuse, um, drug and alcohol, or yeah, drug and alcohol abuse, those sorts of things. The prosecution would call a number of witnesses. Um, one of them was a man named Russell Binstead. He testified that he met Danny in July of 1992 while they were both on the psych ward. He said that Danny was crying because he was being harassed and called names and he wanted people to leave him alone. Danny also told Russell that he knew God had forgiven him for his crimes. And Binstead told Danny he should fake a suicide attempt, that he could stay in the psych ward at the prison instead of having to go into general population. By February of 1993, Danny had started to share details of the murders with Binstead. He described stabbing his victims with the K-bar, um, how it went through like butter and came out like butter, and how he stabbed through bone. Danny told him that he forced Christina Powell to perform oral sex on him and that she complained about the pain when he was raping her. Danny told him that he was on cocaine and drunk when he committed the murders. And he also started telling Russell Binstead that he had been visited by demons. And he described a time when a demon went up the wall um, around a curtain and it brought in cold air with it. He really thought that Danny believed in these demons. And then the last thing that Binstead testified to was that Danny said he was Enad when he robbed people and Gemini when he killed. Bobby Lewis, um, he was the one who, the only one that, that Danny would admit any of the stuff through. Bobby Lewis told the jury that Danny had told him that he, the women he raped were alive for a fairly long time before he killed them. The prosecution also called expert witnesses, one of which was an expert in tool mark evidence. And this person, this person testified that the tool mark evidence of the crime scenes matched the screwdriver that was found at Danny's campsite. The bras and other clothing that were found at the campsite and of the girls, the, his murder victims that were still left behind, the bras and other clothes, clothing showed tearing and her cut marks so that it could be removed from the front. So that basically meant that the, the girls were likely tied up. The defense would quickly start to call in witnesses that could testify to, to Danny's abusive upbringing. The first person that they called was Claudia Rawling, Danny's mother. She testified about the abuse that Danny witnessed and about the abuse that Danny suffered as a child. And she described how in his early adulthood, um, he had so much trouble with everything, and she talked about the Air Force, his divorce, him going to jail. She also talked about how she tried to get, how much he tried to get his father to love him. She also went on to describe that the last time Danny had been home, he looked completely different. His demeanor was hard, and his voice was unrecognizable. But then, just like that, she said that he changed back to the Danny that she knew. Claudia asked him what had happened and he told her that there was another person who had part of, who had like a part of him. Claudia went on to talk about Danny's father's family's history of mental illness. She told the jury that James had witnessed his grandfather slit his grandmother's throat from ear to ear. So no wonder this man was not very nice. Not that it excuses anything that any of these people did, 
but goodness gracious, I can't even imagine witnessing such a horrible thing and witnessing it being done to your grandmother. One of um, James's uncles had committed suicide by putting a shotgun in his mouth. Another uncle died in a mental institute. He had a brother on medication to control his mental illness. And, they, and Claudia said they think his mother may have been schizophrenic. I found some audio of Claudia talking about the abuse that Danny suffered. So let me play that for you now. I always felt it was. They had a way of, he'd make a fist. And in the top of their head, he'd this real hard. Next, the defense called Danny's aunt, um, his aunt Agnes, Agnes Mitchell. She went on to recall the abuse that she witnessed. Once James beat Danny so hard that he drew blood in this. Okay, so this is when Danny was playing in the bathtub. So he must have been a fairly small child. And he got beaten bloody for playing in the bathtub. Agnes felt like Danny was troubled from a really early age. He would have nightmares and delusions. And once when he was six, he cut a dress into strips because he said it had bugs in it. Agnes also talked about how Danny's father, James, tortured animals. He would trap neighborhood cats, shoot them, and then watch them die. Agnes tried to report James twice, but the police said he was a good officer and anything at home was a domestic affair. Back in those days, even in the, you know, the 60s and 70s, it almost seems like it was, it was a, man's, a man's right to beat his wife if she misbehaved or something. I mean, even that stupid show... The honeymooners, honeymooners from like this black and white show. I can't remember what year it was from, but Ralph would always say to the moon, Alice, right? And like hold his fist up and wave it at her. Like that was just okay to do. I mean, of course it wasn't okay to do, but no matter what Agnes tried to do, it went nowhere. Next, the defense called Danny's cousin, Charles Strosser. Charles spent a lot of time with the Rawlings, and he witnessed regular beatings, and he said that even more common than the beatings was verbal abuse. Charles stated that he and Kevin knew that Danny and James needed help. Danny would tell them about visions of demons, of people in his dreams beating him, of going through a group of people and being stuck with sticks, tortured, and gnawed on by demons. He thought Danny needed help, and after Danny's divorce especially, but he didn't talk to Danny about it because he said sometimes Danny was not Danny. The defense also called Claudia's best friend, Bernadine Holder. Bernadine lived across the street from the Rawlings for 28 years, um, from the time Danny was about 11. She witnessed a lot of the abuse, and she was not afraid of James. Often, because of that, often the boys would run to her when they were afraid of him. And of course, the defense would call Bunny Mills because they knew each other for a long time, and Bunny knew a lot about his um, family history. So he and Bunny met in 1988, and they dated off and on until, you know, about 1994, even after he was in prison. Bunny knew that he was disturbed, and she would try to get him to seek help, but he just would never do it. She thought that the time Danny was put in a detention center by his father was really significant. So that happened sometime when he was, I think, 14 or 15. Um, he got drunk or I, I can't remember exact details, but I think he got drunk and then his dad uh, arrested him and had him, well, had him arrested and sent him to 
um, jail and he was there for a while. He never really recovered from that. And he spent a lot of time in isolation too. She would also describe times when he would refer to a childlike state and beg for love. The defense even called uh, to the stand Danny's former attorney, Arthur Carlisle. Arthur was assigned to defend Danny in Mississippi in 1988. He spent a lot of time with him. Danny told Arthur all about the abuse that he suffered. And eventually Arthur convinced Danny to let him call Danny's parents and let them know what was going on. When James realized who Arthur, who Arthur was and why he was calling, he cussed Arthur out and told him never to call back about his SOB Danny. Delightful. After 10 or 15 minutes of being yelled at, Arthur finally just hung up on him. Danny Rowling would undergo several psychiatric evaluations in order to determine whether or not he was fit to stand trial. So the first one, the first doctor he saw, maybe not the first one that he saw, but one of the doctors he saw that was called as a witness by the defense was Dr. Harry Kropp. He first saw Danny in Ocala on January 26, 1991, and his job then was to determine whether or not Danny was competent to stand trial for the armed robbery charges. Dr. Kropp, and it's K-R-O-P, I might be mispronouncing it, but he diagnosed Danny with atypical psychosis. He says that at the time he saw Danny in the beginning, he was very agitated and had scabs all over him from picking at himself, and he was having difficulty grasping reality. Dr. Kropp had put him on an antipsychotic med and declared him competent to stand trial for the, for the armed robberies. Two years later, he was brought back to evaluate Danny in the Gainesville murder cases. This time, Dr. Kropp spent about 22 hours with Danny over eight different sessions. He said that Danny talked about his conflicting feelings for his father, about the abuse he suffered, and Dr. Krupp felt that Danny loved his mother and thought that he that Danny spoke of his mother in positive terms. But although he did speak of her in positive terms, he subconsciously resented her for not protecting them from their father, which makes perfect sense. Danny's father, James, spoke to Dr. Krupp reluctantly. And Dr. Krupp would say that James controlled the conversation by responding without giving an actual response of any kind. James wanted to tell things in a certain order and got upset when Dr. Krupp wanted him to talk about Danny. James denied being abusive ever to his sons or to his wife. James, however, was raised in an abusive household by a holy roller, strict and overbearing family. James claimed that Claudia and her family were liars. And after the interview, James wrote Dr. Kropp a letter outlining everything he did for his family. Dr. Kropp's opinion was that Danny had learned to be untrusting and manipulative. Further, Dr. Kropp would go on to say that children who grew up, in abu who grew up abused, who had been able to check out while being abused, often grew up with the inability to feel empathy. He thought that, like many abused children, Danny thought he could get his dad to love him if he just tried hard enough. This time, Dr. Kropp diagnosed Danny as seriously emotionally disturbed with three types of personality disorders that likely began in childhood. The first one was borderline personality disorder, and this is a pattern of instability in interpersonal relationships, self-image, and affects um, with marked impulsivity. Dr. Kropp also diagnosed Danny with um, antisocial personality disorder, and uh, antisocial personality disorder is is diagnosed as a uh, a pattern of disregard for and violation of the rights of others. 
He also diagnosed Danny with personality disorder, not otherwise specified, consisting of narcissistic, obsessive compulsive, and histrionic features. Narcissistic personality disorder is a pattern of grandiosity, um, including a need for admiration and a lack of empathy. Obsessive compulsive personality disorder is a, is a pattern of preoccupation with orderliness, perfectionism, and control. Histrionic personality disorder is a pattern of excessive emotionality and attention seeking. So, I mean, you know, from what we've learned about Danny, those all fit pretty well. He also indicated that Danny was an alcoholic and abused other substances. And he talked about Danny's paraphilia. Um, he said that his voyeurism was of a severe nature. People, you know, even back in the 90s, I don't know that people took voyeurism, peeping as a very serious offense, which it really it, it is a very serious offense. Dr. Kropp did note that Danny expressed remorse. Whether or not Danny actually felt that remorse is a whole different thing, but he expressed remorse. The next psychiatrist that evaluated Danny for the defense was Dr. Elizabeth McMahon. She spent 29 hours with Danny over seven visits from July to November of 1993. She indicated that Danny exhibited high anxiety, and in response to stress, his anxiety would cloud his perceptions. She described his personality as impoverished and that he had no internal mechanisms to help him deal with difficulty. He used all of his resources every day just to navigate daily activities. That sounds exhausting. He was also emotionally inexperienced. The emotions that he did display, although superficially appropriate, were not his true emotions. He apparently, you know, a lot of times psychopaths and sociopaths are able to learn what responses are expected of them so that they can fake them. She went on to say that he had poor emotional controls. His defense mechanism was to shut down and become inflexible. When his repressed emotions are expressed, it is in an uncontrolled way. He was immature and extremely impaired in terms of his ability to, to feel empathy. He had repressed hostility and internal anger to the point of rage. He was depressed most of the time. He had feelings of inadequacy, hopelessness, and insecurity. He had an unmet need for affection and dependency. He was unrealistic and grandiose in his self-appraisal. Dr. McMahon would diagnose Danny with um, borderline personality disorder with antisocial features. She also said that he displayed features of histrionic, narcissistic, and dependent personality disorders. And so we talked about histrionic and narcissistic. Dependent personality disorder is a pattern of submissive and clinging behavior related to an excessive need to be taken care of. So that really fits the idea, not the idea, that really fits the stories of Danny almost reverting to a childlike state and begging for love. She also diagnosed Danny with dissociative disorder, possession syndrome, and possession form identities and dissociative identity disorder typically manifest as behaviors that appear as if a spirit, a supernatural being, or outside person has taken control, such that the individual begins speaking or acting in a distinctly different manner. She also diagnosed him with um, paraphilia, voyeurism, and with an identity disorder. She said that the long-term abuse Danny suffered led to a sense of paranoia and distrust. When Dr. McMahon asked if there was anything that would have prevented these crimes from happening, Danny responded that as if his mother had left his father and if he had received psychiatric care, he may not have become the monster that he became. 
Dr. McMahon's opinion was that Danny was suffering from um, borderline personality disorder to a severe degree at the time of the offenses, and his ability to conform to the law was significantly impaired. The defense called one more psychiatrist in to testify about Danny's mental health issues. Dr. Robert Sadoff spent a total of eight and a half hours with Danny over two days. He found Danny to be charming, interesting, and cooperative. He said Danny was also intrusive and overly personal, which is indicative of attachment issues, which would make sense since, you know, Danny probably had some major attachment issues because of the way he was treated in those early days. Dr. Sadoff would also say that it seemed that Danny would get lost in thought or that he would dissociate. He diagnosed Danny with borderline personality disorder and said it was the most severe case he had seen. He also diagnosed Danny with personality disorder not otherwise specified, which included obsessive compulsive disorder, antisocial disorder, histrionic, um, narcissistic, paranoid personality disorder, substance abuse, and a paraphilia voyeurism. He also diagnosed Danny with paranoid personality disorder, and this is a pattern of distrust and suspiciousness such that others' motives are interpreted as malevolent. The state would also have Danny evaluated, and the first witness that the state called was Dr. Sidney Marin, and Sidney Marin evaluated Danny for competency in 1991. He spent about an hour with Danny. Um, Danny said that God was pulling the strings said that he felt like God sometimes, and it felt like cold water rushing over him on a very hot day. He described hearing voices that were like black smoke. Now, Dr. Marin diagnosed Danny with schizotypal personality disorder. And what this is, is, is a pattern of acute discomfort in close relationships, cognitive or perceptual distortions, and eccentricities of behavior. Marin sent his teaching assistants in to administer tests to Danny a couple of times. Before Marin testified in the Gainesville murders, he reviewed all the depositions, police reports, Danny's taped st statements, and taped interviews with Drs. Kropp and McMahon. Dr. Marin would diagnose Danny with antisocial personality disorder. Marin felt that Danny was antisocial, not borderline. And he said because his behavior, he said he felt like this because his, um, Danny's behavior was sadistic. Marin also diagnosed Danny as histrionic, narcissistic, dependent, obsessive, compulsive. Marin felt that Danny was not under extreme emotional or mental distress at the time of the crimes, and he understood right from wrong. One of the tests that Dr. Marin had administered to Danny was the Minnesota Multiphasic Personality Inventory, or their MMPI. Now, the scores for Danny are as follows. Danny had elevated numbers on three of the subscales measured, and these Subscales were the psychopathic deviate, paranoia, and schizophrenia. So the psychopathic deviate measures general social maladjustment and the absence of strongly pleasant experiences. These items um, on this scale tap into complaints about family and authority figures in general, self-alienation, social alienation, and boredom. The paranoia scale primarily measures interpersonal sensitivity, moral self-righteousness, and suspiciousness. Some of the items used to score this scale are clearly psychotic in that they acknowledge the existence of paranoid or delusional thoughts. And then finally, the schizophrenia scale measures bizarre thoughts, peculiar perceptions, social alienation, poor familiar relationships, 
difficulties in concentrating and impulse control, lack of deep interest, disturbing question of self-worth and self-identity, and sexual difficulties. So there are four validity scales that measure the attitude and approach to the test, and two of these were of note in Danny. Danny scored high on the F scale, which Marin stated indicates distress. The F scale, um, and the F does not stand for anything, although it is mistakenly sometimes referred to as the infrequency or frequency scale, but the F scale is intended to detect unusual or atypical ways of answering test items. Like if a person were to randomly fill out the test, it taps a number of strange thoughts, peculiar experiences, feelings of isolation and alienation, and a number of unlikely or contradictory beliefs, expectations, and self-descriptions. If a person answers too many of the F and the FB scale items incorrectly or not honestly, it will invalidate the entire test. Danny scored very low on this K scale. Marin felt that normally this score would indicate a cry for help, but in Danny's case, he thought it indicated very poor self-esteem. The K scale is designed to identify psychopathology in people who otherwise would have profiles within the normal range. It measures self-control and family and interpersonal relationships. And people who score high on this scale are often seen as being defensive. So Danny scored very low. Marin went out and saw The Exorcist 3 um, because he had not seen that before. And apparently this became a big deal in during the trial because they were trying to say that Danny was um, malingering and just made up Gemini based on the movie. So Marin went and saw The Exorcist 3, and he found it interesting that Gemini in the movie had lost the tips of his fingers like Danny had, and that there was a portrait on the wall that looked like Danny. Now, I sat down to watch The Exorcist 3 to see if I could find this picture on the wall that looked like Danny, but I got through about 10 minutes of it, and it's just too scary. <laughs> I know I can talk about serial killers cutting the heads off people, but I can't watch scary movies. Marin didn't think that Danny was malingering, but instead that the Gemini character gave Danny a way to mystically explain his bad self. Marin didn't find that Danny's voyeurism was compulsive, which that I, I don't know how that could be true. Um, because I think voyeurism in general, that sort of peeping Tom is compulsive. Marin also discussed Danny's visions of demons, um, you know, those sorts of things as hypnagogic episodes, images a person sees while in the state between sleep and wakefulness. So that that lines up with sleep paralysis. Um, it's that state in between where, but in sleep paralysis, instead of being able to get up and move, you cannot move at all. Next, the state called Dr. It's S-P-H-R-E-H-E. -E. Um, I have no idea how to pronounce that, so I'm going to say Sfrihi a forensic psychiatrist who reviewed case documents such as crime scene photos, Danny's tape statements, audio tapes of Dr. Krupp and McMahon, witness depositions, Danny's medical and psych re records, and trial transcripts of Drs. Krupp, McMahon, and Sadoff, and diagnosed Danny with the following. Antisocial personality disorder, paraphilia, history of substance abuse, um, some of the traits of borderline personality disorder. Dr. Sfrihi, also did not think that Danny had possession syndrome and also did not feel that the voyeurism was a compulsion. So here's the sum of all Danny's mental disorders. 
all five psychiatrists agreed that Danny exhibited antisocial personality disorder. All five agreed he had a paraphilia, but two of five did not feel that it was a significant problem. Four of the five diagnosed him with histrionic, narcissistic, dependent, and obsessive compulsive personality disorders. Four out of five diagnosed him with borderline personality disorder. One out of five diagnosed him with possession syndrome. And then all five diagnosed him with substance abuse. So let's start with substance abuse. Danny started drinking alcohol pretty early on. And the teenage or adolescent brain is very vulnerable to the deleterious effects of alcohol. According to Guerreri and Pasquale in their 2009 article, teenage drinking is associated with long-term cognitive defects. And they don't just mean, you know, a teenager having a beer, but like drinking um, excessively. In this article, they go on to describe how intoxication as an adolescent causes brain damage, impairing the normal processes of brain maturation and plasticity. So what plasticity means is its ability, it's the brain's ability to react and respond to environmental changes and kind of go with the flow, if you will. They also said that teenage or adolescent drinking can cause long lasting behavioral consequences. In another study by Fien et al., authors found that teenagers who drank alcohol regularly showed decreased volume in the left frontal temporal parietal regions of the brain. Now, these are important because the frontal, um, the left frontal portion of the brain is in charge of impulse control, um, fear, like not fear, but your reaction to fear, those sorts of things. You often see in serial killers or violent offenders, there's some damage to the frontal and temporal regions of the brain. Danny also started to experiment with drugs fairly early on at 17 or 18, if not earlier than that. And some of the drugs that he tried, if you remember from whatever episode that was, I think episode two, chocolate mescaline. Chocolate mescaline is extracted from the peyote cacti and it's mixed with chocolate to cover that really bitter taste. Mescaline can lead to perceptual anomalies, including seeing sounds, smelling colors, etc., and it can lead to psychosis or flashbacks. He, Danny also would claim that he did LSD more than 100 times. One of these was orange sunshine. The long-term effects of LSD can include persistent psychosis, which includes visual disturbances, disorganized thinking, paranoia, mood disturbances, and it can also cause um, hallucinogen persisting perception disorder. And this include hallucinations, visual disturbances, halos or trails on moving objects, and neurological disorder-like symptoms. Danny also did a lot of quaaludes. And quaaludes are synthetic barbiturates. And they act as um, an antagonist at the GABA-A receptor, which, so that's not super, super important, but what that GABA-A receptor does or its importance is like knowing that GABA-A isn't important, but that the effect is important. So the GABA-A receptors are really dense um, in the frontal lobe of the brain. Okay, what's the frontal lobe responsible for? Keeping you under control, critical thinking, impulse control, right? Um, responses to fear. So this GABA or gamma aminobutyric acid is an inhibitor. And it is the neurotransmitter in, that acts in, it's, it is a neurotransmitter that you find in 20% of all central nervous system synapses. 
GABA can cause calm, euphoria, sleepiness, and it's also a central nervous system, system depressant. Danny did a lot of hash and marijuana. When these are used early on as a teenager, it can lead to a decrease in IQ. Danny's IQ was reported as 89, which is on the low average side, um, sometimes called dullness. Danny also experimented with cocaine and with crack cocaine. Well, crack to the attic, it is so highly addictive and it's addictive for a number of reasons. First, because crack is smoked, it's able to bypass the body's systems that would diminish its effect. Um, you know, like the GI tract, your liver, those sorts of things. Second, crack has a very high potency. Remember that cocaine is about 40%, 45% filler, while crack is only about 20% filler. Crack, when smoked, is brought into the lungs and then it goes almost immediately to the brain where it blocks the reuptake of dopamine. The result is that the smoker will experience a huge surge of dopamine, which is that feel-good chemical. Over time, the user becomes tolerant of crack's effects and will require more and more of the drug to experience that same high. The high that crack creates will take hold in under a minute, peak in three to five minutes, and last 30 to 60 minutes. So the brain quickly associates crack with pleasure and, the, and, and it then begins to drive the user to seek it out. And that's one of the reasons why crack is so addictive because it, it affects you so quickly. Your brain like immediately knows that it's whatever you just smoked that's making you feel good. And so then your brain is going to be like, oh, I want to smoke more of this so I can feel really good. The long-term effects of crack can include mood changes, irritability, restlessness, depression, anxiety, paranoia, and hallucinations. People who, well, okay, so according to the American Addiction Centers, the effects of cocaine on the brain are, quote, people who have an increased potential to develop psychosis or schizophrenia are more likely to trigger this condition if they binge cocaine in powdered or freebase form. Cocaine increases stress hormones like cortisol in the brain, which can in turn raise blood pressure permanently, damaging the cardiovascular system. Even if the person does not develop psychosis or paranoia, they could develop anxiety, panic disorders, or problems with aggression and violence, end quote. The site goes on to describe a study published by John Hopkins University that, that found that cocaine use may cause brain cells to cannibalize themselves. They also reference a University of Cambridge study that indicated people who used cocaine had double the amount of gray matter loss in their brains as they age. And gray matter is... Um, it's important because it's mostly the cell bodies of neurons and, and dendrites. So, so the gray matter is going to be densely packed, and you find gray matter in the brain and in the, in, you know, in the spinal cord. In addition to the damage that cocaine can um, cause in the brain and the nervous system, crack is an intensive stimulant, which causes huge amounts of the stress hormone to circulate. Cortisol huge amounts of cortisol can lead to systemic inflammation causing damage to the cardiovascular and renal systems. People who abuse stimulant drugs like crack are at a high or increased risk of a heart attack. While Danny was in the, um, the psych ward at the prison, he was given Thorazine. Thorazine blocks dopamine uptake because psychosis can be induced by excessive dopamine, right? So all of these drugs that Danny was taking early on Danny was likely a good candidate for developing psychosis, um, especially since he was showing signs of, you know, I don't know if it was schizophrenia or not, but all the visions he saw when he was young, they sound very schizophrenia-like. 
Thorazine, um, it causes tardive dyskinesia, which is basically that's what the Thorazine shuffle is, right? So if you watch One Blue Over the Cuckoo's Nest or any movie that takes place in um, a psych ward, you'll see people shuffling up, getting their medication and shuffling off. So tardive dyskinesia just basically means that your muscles are um, and you're not your muscle. Well, I mean your muscles, but it's based on your nervous system's response to the Thorazine. And so it just kind of slows everything down. The, the courts ruled that Danny could not use the insanity plea. And this was because of the McNaughton rule. And under the McNaughton rule, a criminal defendant is not guilty by reason of insanity if at the time of the alleged criminal act, the defendant was so deranged that he or she did not know the nature or quality of his actions, or if he knew the nature and quality of his actions, but was so deranged that he did not know that what he was doing was wrong. Danny was sentenced to death. I'm going to play a couple of clips of Danny um, talking about the way he feels about the murders and the way he feels about uh, facing death. I let my guard down. I let the evil in. The evil just took over. And it was like when the sun would go down, I, I couldn't resist it. It just pulled me like, like a tidal wave. And in the day, when the, when the morning would come up, it was just like I would hate myself. You know, it was like, a, it was like, my God, what have I become? It was just no turning back. And I think that there's a war going on. And I, and, and I think that that war is in, in a dimension that you can't really see with your naked eye between the forces of good and evil, angels and devils, if you will. And they prey on us. Good Lord only knows, man, this time next year, I'm liable to be dead. And I can't even argue that it probably wouldn't be a justful thing. But does that mean I don't want to live? No, I want to live. I want forgiveness, but I can't ask them for that. They don't want to hear anything from me. But can you blame them? I can't blame them. I can't blame them for wanting me to, to be dead. On March 30th, 1994, Danny's mother, Claudia, living with terminal liver cancer, um, which included tubes that were coming out of her abdomen to drain her liver um, and to administer chemotherapy drugs. She wasn't able to get around or even care for herself. Well, James came home and he found her watching coverage of Danny's trial. So he did what any man would do when they catch their wife watching their son's trial. He, you know, especially their, their, um, invalid wife who cannot take care of themselves. He beat her nearly to death. He even pulled out her tubes, um, but thankfully he was arrested for this. He was charged with assault, and when he was released, he filed for divorce. I mean, he is a, a real, he was, he was a real piece of work, huh? On April 20th, 1994, the judge confirmed Danny's death sentences. While Danny was in prison, he fell in love with a woman named Sandra London, and she was the co-author of the book, The Making of a Serial Killer, The True Story of the Gainesville Ripper. She was the co-author with Danny on that book. 
many people question what Sandra's motives were in falling in love, air quotes, you can't see, falling in love with Danny while he was on death row for murdering people. Um, and Danny always took up for her. In this next clip, Danny's talking to a reporter and he reads a statement about how wonderful Sandra is. At this time, I feel it necessary to comment on the blatant statements Mr. James H. Williams has made concerning Sandra London, Bobby Lewis, prison authorities, and myself. I'm compelled to bring this matter into the light because Williams has caused undue pain and problems for those mentioned and on his own tried to muddy the waters and hinder the investigation in progress. Number one, Miss London and myself have been corresponding for almost a year now. Regardless of what Williams has said, Miss London is of the highest caliber, sincere and honest, a woman of extraordinary talents. If I were her, I would sue Williams for slander and defamation of character. She did not deserve the things he said or what the Gainesville Sun printed about her. It's just not so. I do not know Williams' reason to do such a vicious thing. It was totally unmerited or called for. I think Williams has left himself subject to be charged with criminal mischief and or obstruction of justice. Number two. Sandra London is a colorful and bright woman, intelligent, talented, and it's a shame the way the media has bashed her as of late. She hasn't done anything to deserve that. Sandra is a worthy soul who only tries to bring the very best out of all she does. Number three, Sandra London did not seek me out. I inquired her services because I had seen some of her work, namely a screenplay under the title of Redbone about the dramatic story of Bobby Lewis's escape from death row, which would impress anyone. And so I wanted her to do my story. Sandra London is not I repeat, not using me, period. No one is using me. I don't care what her previous lawyer, Chet Billinger, said about her. Can you imagine that? Her own lawyer sold her up the river. If I was a client of his, I think I'd find somebody else to represent me for fear that one day Chet Billinger would have something publicly to say about me. Over the past 180 days, Sandra and myself have tried by protocol and through proper channels to get her approved to visit me. And she was allowed to visit me behind the glass once. Number five, any and all parties involved in the investigation underway concerning the Gainesville murders have been and will be dealt with in an honorable fashion. The wheels of justice may turn slow, but they do turn. You don't ask of justice, it asks of you. Number six, the prison officials here at FSP have not made any deals with me, period. Nor have they made any promises to Bobby Lewis or myself, period. I have not been coerced into making any statements, period. Number seven, Miss London represents me as editor, agent, and media go-between. From this point on, I shall make no further statements to the press unless Sandra London arranges it. If you wish to speak to me, speak to Miss London. Number eight. Any further statements you wish at this time, please consult my lawyers, Mr. Richard Parker or Johnny Kearns, who are excellent lawyers for the defense and very capable of answering any other questions. I have nothing further to say. Thank you and good day. In fact, Danny loved Sandra so much that he sang to her. Reach out to say I love you, but it was hard to say 
Danny was put to death, he sang um, a hymn. I think it's called a hymn. He who flung the stars into the heavens, above the created oceans, mountains, eagles, and doves, none greater than thee, O Lord, none greater than thee. So you're a true crime junkie, a true crime enthusiast, and you might be wondering exactly what it is that that's used for lethal injection here in the U.S., I'm going to tell you. It is typically a cocktail of three different um, three different drugs. One is a short-acting barbiturate, and that's sodium theopental, and it is used for anesthesia and also for inducing comas. So what happens is that one is given first, and it puts the, in this case, a disgusting monster, into that kind of twilight state that happens um, when you first are undergoing anesthesia. Next comes pancuronium bromide. And pancuronium bromide is a paralyzing agent. What it does, it blocks acetylcholine at the diaphragm, the, the acetylcholine. It, bo- it blocks acetylcholine from binding to receptors on the diaphragm. So the diaphragm is the skeletal muscle. Even though you don't have to think about breathing, you know, our breathing is kind of an involuntary thing, the diaphragm is still under um, voluntary control. That's why you can increase, decrease the rate of your respiration. That's why you can do those things. Acetylcholine is the neurotransmitter that's released at the neuromuscular junction. So basically what that means is acetylcholine allows muscle, skeletal muscle contractions and in, in, you know, like the diaphragm, muscle contractions. So when you block that, when you block the receptors for acetylcholine, then those muscles cannot contract. If you paralyze the diaphragm, what happens to your breathing? You know, you're unless you're on a machine, you're pretty much toast. And then the final piece of the cocktail is potassium chloride. And potassium chloride actually causes the heart to flatline. And so it doesn't what it what it does is it prevents the heart from relaxing to then contract again. So it keeps it in this elevated flatline state. And so then it stops working. The issue here is that with these, with lethal injection, you know, it's a violation of the Hippocratic Oath for a doctor or a nurse to administer the, uh, the cocktail of drugs and participate in executing someone. So you have people who are not necessarily qualified injecting this cocktail of drugs. Then they're surprised when things go wrong. I'm not a big fan of the death penalty, but not for reasons that one might think. I believe that it is not right for one human 
to be charged with carrying out the death penalty on, on another human. I think that's, to me, that's the biggest issue. Not so much that a horrible monster is put to death, but that another human is having to be responsible for that. That is the story of Danny Rawling, the Gainesville Ripper. A very sick, demented individual who wreaked havoc over a long weekend in Gainesville. Follow SKB on most of your social media platforms at SKB Pod or visit the website at www.skbpod.com for more information about the show. And if you're enjoying SKB, please take a moment to give it a five star review and subscribe on whatever your favorite podcatcher is. I'll be back soon with another series about another serial killing monster. Until next time, this has been Caroline, SKB. If you're interested in having a copy of the Rolling Tape, I paid like a hundred bucks for it to, um, so I could use it in this, but I'm happy to send you zip files of it for free if you're interested. If you want it, I'm happy to share it. You can email me at Caroline Rivera, which is R-I-V-E-R-A 108 at gmail.com. And I'm happily send you a zip file. All right. Take care until next time. Hopefully it'll be within the next the next month or so I'll have uh, the next series started.